0: Welcome to Journey South Bay. Thank you for inviting us in to listen to God's word. Take a moment to get comfortable, sit back, and relax as we listen to today's message.
1: All right, today's scripture readings from Matthew 5, 31 to 37. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, 35 or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair black or white. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil.
0: There we go. Am I on? Okay. It's good to be with you. We've um, been going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is a long sermon on, by Jesus uh, where he, in a very uh, clear and extensive way, uh, doesn't really lay out for us uh, how you become a Christian or, or what uh, the entrance into Christianity is, but more so what it looks like uh, if you are a Christian, what a Christian looks like for those who have embraced the gospel. And so if you're somebody who has never uh, professed faith or embraced the gospel, what the uh, Sermon on the Mount should do for you is help you understand what Christians are called to, that, this, that Christianity is not just a, uh, a get-out-of-jail-free card. It, it is a lifestyle. It, it, it is an entire worldview on life that Jesus really sums up in this sermon this morning. Now, the two passages that we read uh, uh, that Jesus sort of talks about quickly, divorce and then oaths, Um, for me, I've always kind of read those and wondered, why did Matthew record these two back-to-back together? Because it feels uh, really odd to to connect these together. Um, But as I studied this and read some um, works and other uh, studies that people put together on these works, uh, I I began to realize that uh, there's a very uh, intelligent intentionality behind connecting these two. And rather than spend um, a whole morning talking about the, the biblical view of a divorce, which we should definitely do one time and come back to, what I'd rather do is go after what I think Matthew was doing when he was putting these texts together and say there are some themes and realities that undergird these issues, which is why we're so tempted to divorce or break oaths. And what I'd like to talk to you about this morning is uh, what I think he sums up really even more in the second texts on a truth and honesty and really integrity. That these issues really are the issues behind our our problems with marriage and with, um, with lying. So let's look at that this morning. Let's look at truth, honesty, and integrity that Jesus has to talk to us about this morning, that Christians are called to a life of honesty and integrity. And let's let's see it under three headings. One, there's an accountability for integrity. Two, we'll see the scope of integrity, and three, we'll just see how you actually can come into integrity. Uh, so, first, uh, the the accountability for integrity. If you look at the text with me in verses uh, 34 to 35, um, Jesus uh, he says, "I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven." for it is the throne of God or by earth for it is the footstool or by Jerusalem for it is the great city of the king and do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black Um, now what's he doing there well when he introduces it again you have heard it said of those of old again Jesus is is not contradicting the Old Testament what he's doing is he's entering into uh, what we understand is ancient case law that in Israel around that day they had ways of dealing with the commandment of do not lie. In the case law, it worked like this. If you lie, the way that it was evaluated and thought depended on the seriousness of the circumstances of the vow that you took. And the closer or more you were to the temple, where where God dwelt and where His name was, and, and you were invoking the name of God, the more serious the vow was and therefore the more serious the lie would be. So for example, you know, um, the way it would work is every time in, in Israel that you took a vow, you would always take it in the name of something. So you would, you know, sometimes you would take it in the name of your spouse or the name of your children or the name of one of your possessions. And as it got further away from the temple. The more you did this, the less people thought you were seriously breaking the law. Do not lie. Jesus addresses this in Matthew 23 and in a more extensive way when he says this, "'Woe to you blind guides who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred?' And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift of the altar, he is bound by that oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So Jesus is, is, is he's, he's bringing up this idea that as long as you don't swear by this, it's not so much of a big deal if you lie. That the context and the circumstances actually diminish the issue. I remember one time, um, many years ago, uh, being uh, in a church after a worship service and hearing, uh, sort of being in a conversation with a couple people. And two men began uh, joking and talking about something that was really way over the line, very inappropriate talk. And, and finally, one of them said, you know, we're, we're in this church building. We probably shouldn't talk like this. And I remember thinking, well, why does it matter where we are? And that's what Jesus is going after. What he's doing is he, he's trying to go after our, our tendency to diminish accountability of things based on the circumstances of where you are. And the reason he's going after this is he says, if you're a Christian, there is no such thing as ever taking a vow or doing anything outside of the presence of God. This is what he means when he says, who cares uh, where you're taking an oath? In verse 34, either by heaven, for that's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool Or by Jerusalem, for it is the great city of the king. Uh, The theologian um, R.C. Sproul used to say that the essence of the Christian life was this Latin phrase, quorum Deo, which simply just means before the face of God. That all of life, once you profess Christianity, everything you do, no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, is in the presence and before the face of God. He put it this way. To live in the presence of God is to understand that whatever you are doing and wherever we are doing it, we are acting under the gaze of God. God is omnipresent. There is no place so remote that we can escape His penetrating ga- gaze. Uh, now, growing up, uh, my, my mom had a deal with all of us kids that there was no homework excuse me, I mean, no TV until the homework was done. That was an extensive conversation continually said in our house. So our life kind of worked this way. When we got home from school, if mom was at work or mom was out running errands, we didn't do our homework. We were like, yes, woohoo, TV. And we would watch it, and we'd be on the couch, and we'd be enjoying it, but the moment we heard that car drive up the driveway... We immediately turned off the TV, picked up our books, and acted like we had been doing work the whole time. Now, why? Now, why did we do that? Because we knew the deal, we knew the vow, we knew the promise. No TV until the homework is done. And it's a one thing to break that vow and to break that promise. It's a whole other thing to be breaking it in the presence of of the person you've made it with. And so what we felt like is it's not as big of a deal when we're breaking it as long as she's not here. And Jesus says, there is nothing that connects like that with me. There is no such thing as ever breaking these not in my presence. There's no equivalent to that. And if you understood that, you'd be a person of integrity. Because there is no moment that any of your words, that any of your promises, that any of the things that you're held to are done before or not before the presence of God. Look, have you ever had that thought um, that you might be like the center of a TV show that everybody's watching but you and everybody's looking at you and you're the main character and your whole life is recorded and you kind of have this panic moment like, oh my goodness. What have I been saying or doing? If that were true, would you change how you live? And what you say? We almost all would, which means none of us probably have integrity, and we're fools. R.C. Sproul continues, he says, to live the life of quorum Deo is to live a life of integrity. It is a life of wholeness that finds its unity and coherency in the majesty of God. A fragmented life is a life of disintegration. It is marked by inconsistency, disharmony, confusion, conflict, contradiction, and chaos. The Christian who compartmentalizes his or her life into two sections of the religious and the non-religious has failed to grasp this crucial idea. Now, let's apply this this way, because this teaching by Jesus is very introspective and reveals something and calls us kind of into something. Look, if this teaching by Jesus, that everything you do is accountable to the presence of God, that's going to feel one of two ways. Some of you are feeling like the loopholes are tightening And the laws are becoming more and more burdensome. What that means is that the law of God and Jesus' teaching, what it feels like is like a parole officer who's moved into your room and is there to just note-take any moment that you're slipping up. And what that should tell you right now about your heart is that you really struggle with a Pharisaical heart. That deep down below everything that you, you really believe That the way to God and the way to be accepted before God is that you have to present a record. You have to present a particular life that's acceptable to Him in order to be loved and commended by Him. Which is why you're so obsessed with doing it in front of other people and why it's so easy to struggle in private. And anytime the privacy gets threatened and questioned and asked about, it feels like a burden. The other way to hear this teaching is for it to feel like a friend who has moved into your room, who is not there to pick out every single thing that you've dropped on the floor and missed, but they're there to give you connection. They're there to give you reality. And they're there to be a loving, formative accountability For you to be somebody that you actually desperately want to be. And you only get that one is if the gospel of grace is deep down in your soul. Where you know that being in front of the presence of God and it always being accountable to you is not a crushing thing. But it's a freeing thing because the presence is not coming into you to say measure up to this. You have to keep up. It's a presence that comes in and says you're only here because I choose you here by gracious love. And that, that's a presence that is there to just wake you up into the reality that you are always accountable for that presence. And that's the way that you begin to have integrity. But the second thing that he gives us here in this text, along with the accountability for integrity, is the scope of integrity. This is what sort of Jesus means when he says this in verse 37. Uh, Let what you say be simply yes or no. Famously, we were heard to just say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Now, what does he mean? I think simply what he just means here is Jesus is calling us to be consistent. That the extent of your promises uh, ought to not have different trajectories uh, for different crowds or different circumstances. We should be the same everywhere and our words should testify to that. So it asks us questions like, you know, do you say one thing to this group and a whole other thing to this group? Like you, you know, there the were people who a couple years ago were saying, you, you know what the problem with this country is, is it's our president, you know, this blah, 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 this one. And then to the next group of people, you walk over to a half an hour later and you say, you know the best part about this country is our president, blah, 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 blah. blah. Do you change? Do you just say things in order to be accepted and commended and liked in the group of people? Are you moving? Do you have one personality online and another one totally in person? Do you text things you'd never say to people's face? Do you think things that you'd never say out loud? You say things to certain groups of people, about certain people, that you'd never say to their face. Because what Jesus says is, say yes, and it will always be yes. Be the same. Now, what about this language when Jesus says, but I say to you in verse 34, do not take an oath at all. Now, I don't think that he's saying in forbidding uh, promises or declarations. You know, the Anabaptist church uh, takes this so seriously, they believe that you can't even sign an affidavit. But I I don't think that's what Jesus means or is saying here. Because there's all sorts of texts throughout all of the Bible where Jesus is making covenants with people. Uh, He's making declarations and promises. Uh, Jesus himself even sort of says in Mark 14, uh, a swear and an oath that he will not drink or eat of the, of the fruit of the vine again until he's with his people in the kingdom. And the call to marriage really is an oath and a swear and a promise in and of itself. I don't think that Jesus is forbidding anything like that. What he's forbidding seem to be levels of truth. That is, don't take an oath for things that you swear are a big deal but you'd never do it with little deals because you're probably going to break that thing. But whatever you say yes to, that people ought to find you as trustworthy and taking as much weight onto that as if it's a coffee date next week as much as it is a million dollar deal due at the end of the year. That in all things, that you ought to be so reliable, so dependable with your yeses and with your noes That it doesn't take any kind of caveat for somebody to finally look and say, look, this time I promise, I swear, I'll do it. That you're so trustworthy and you're so clear and you're so dependable that every single time your word really is the most reliable thing about you. Now, few of us outwardly break that in regular ways. But a lot of us break it in white little ways. So much of this material that I've gotten today um, comes from several different ministers who've done a lot of different work that I kind of synthesized together. But one, one minister whose sermon I read on this, he listed five lies that you and I probably really struggle with. Uh, where our yes is not yes and our no is not no. He said, uh, one, social. Uh, You know, uh, so sorry just now seeing this. You didn't. You saw it days ago. But the ways that we sort of socially navigate these, to say, oh yeah, totally forgot you didn't. But it's a way for us to feel like we could navigate this moment a little bit better. Another lie. The manipulative lie. He is the worst. I would never do that. Are you always. Rarely is that actually true of somebody. That they always do these things. Or they never are this. What you mean is that they don't do it enough. Or they do it more than you wish they would. But why do we extend it into these exaggerations? The reason is because we're trying to demean that person because we want to control them and we want to manipulate them. So what we do is we take something that might be a little bit true and we extend it and exaggerate it in such a way so that we make them feel a certain way and we can control how they feel. And us bending a little bit of it and extending the truth feels justified because of what we want to do with this person. And it's a lie. Third one. John Stott mentions this in his commentary, caption reporting. How was that restaurant? How was that? Best night ever. Incredible. Amazing. How was that? This, uh, how was the worship service this morning? It was the most powerful thing I've ever been to. Now, some of you are going, how is that a lie? Well, if you say it all the time, People get so cynical, they stop taking you seriously. And they don't know when it's actually true. When they want your opinion for anything. If everything is just the most amazing, incredible, wonderful thing ever, it's not realistic. Fourth one, we we lie by smiling and nodding. In seminary, I had this preaching class where what we had to do was uh, after like three weeks of lectures, everybody had to get up and give like a 15-minute sermon. And there were several people who got up and gave sermons. And uh, we had to give feedback on it. And the professor would go, okay, thoughts on that sermon. And we would, if, like all of us would race to the point of, well, you had good eye contact. Um, you know, you, uh, your voice was loud. And what we were doing is the person was so painful and really probably not gifted for it that none of us had the guts to go, you know what, I don't think this is for you. And we just smiled and we just nodded and we just went along with it and we were lying to them. And we were making it so easy on ourselves and we, because we did not want to do the hard thing. The fifth lie he mentions are work lies. Just tweaking policies, gray write-offs, overbilling hours, misrepresenting work, misrepresenting what you got done that week, misrepresenting how you spent your day. The way we skip over those things, check them in as if it's typical business, It's a lie. And what's the big big deal with those things? Because when we do them, they never feel like an enormous deal, right? It just feels like, well, that's kind of how people do life. Look, if you have a, a, a gravel driveway, you know, if one of your kids picks up a rock once or twice a day, today, it's not a big deal on your gravel driveway, right? It just kind of is what it is. But if they do it every single day for like three years, you know what's going to happen to that gravel driveway? It's going to be gone. Look, the, these little lies that are so repetitive and, and patterned in the way that we do life, they never they feel like a, just a pebble that you're picking up. But if you do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, where your yes is not quite yes, and your no is not totally no, there's going to be nothing left. If we keep doing this, you, you, you know what these lies do? Is A, my wife and I say this all the time, lying ruins relationships. Look, it's almost impossible to be in an intimate relationship with somebody or to be in a a real friendship with somebody or to have a work relationship with somebody whose yes is never yes and whose no is not a real no. If you go into those serious things and the higher and the more intimate it gets, and they say something, and you have to still stand over the cliff and wonder how true this is, it's going to be hard to ever have a reliable, committed, intimate relationship. But lying, it also, it gives you an identity crisis. Look, uh, who are you? What makes you you? If somebody asks you this question, it says, tell me about you. Look, the way to answer that question is to describe the thing that's always the same. What is it about you that is true in every circumstance of your life? If you're lying, it's hard to find one. You know, Tiger Woods um, and I don't want to pick on him, but he's he's just got a story that's helpful here. In 2009, when his life blew up, because he'd been covering over here and covering over here from multiple different people, when he finally got up and talked about the struggle of this in a press conference, one of the things he said is, I forgot who I was. See, If you white lie, oh, here, 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 and here, and here, there'll be no you left. Because you'll be be trying to craft a you in every sphere of your life. And you'll lose your whole identity. Lying, it also, it degrades dignity. Look, when you lie, you, you exploit somebody. And you take away something from them. And what you do is you create a downward spiral where both people become less and less human. Look, if you're in an intimate relationship, and it's amazing how po- potent this is to announce what Jesus is talking about with divorce and marriage, and you lie to somebody, you are pulling something out of that marriage and dragging that person down. And when they find out the lie, and figure it out. Hardly ever do they handle it in a gracious, gentle way. Typically what that lie does is it makes them hate you and brings them down into a hateful, vindictive, angry moment. And when they do that, it degrades the other person and sucks them down in a cycle. And what happens is the lying begets a vicious cycle where both people become worse people as the lies beget hatred and more lies until it turns you into somebody you have no idea was anybody you could have ever been friends with but the other last thing that lying will do is is it will inevitably one time force you to face reality look if you're living in a lie the myth is that it's truth and that you've been able to craft something that is working for yourself, that is thriving for you, and believing that it's that no one is onto this, but it always ends poorly. And it never wins. And so Jesus says, let your yes be yes. And your no be no. that's what a Christian life is, the scope of all of our words, all of our relationships, all of our interactions. He says it ought to be yes. And people think it's yes. And when you say no, it ought to be no. So thirdly, lastly, how do we do this? How do you cultivate this? Look, why, why is that so hard? Because it, I, I feel like that's hard. I feel like it's hard in my marriage. I feel like it's hard in my friend relationships. I feel like it's hard in my parenting. Why why is that so hard? Well, Jesus says this in verse 33 that I think is really helpful and instructive for us. He says, again, you have heard it said of those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, this language, he says, you shall perform to the Lord. The word in the Greek there for perform is a peculiar word. Uh, what it, uh, I think in the NIV it says, you shall keep to the Lord. But really what the word means in most all places is that you shall pay back to the Lord. Now, what does Jesus mean here? Well, I think he's hinting at this. Let's take it this way. That when you tell the truth, and when you keep your oaths, and when you are faithful, it's costly. That to tell the truth is a very costly thing in life. I remember one of the things, the moments that I really discovered what integrity was, was I had a student about ten years ago, whose name was Mike, who became a Christian midway through his college, career, or, or towards the end of his college career, and he got a, a very great job uh, with the government in an engineering uh, uh, department in the Pittsburgh area. And once he'd gotten the job uh, and gotten his whole package and stuff like that, they sent him a, a government clearance, a security thing, that he had to fill out and, uh, and talk to them about. And one of the things on there was it said, have you ever done drugs? And this is college, and he'd just become a Christian. He said, Alex, about 18 months ago, I tried marijuana one time. What should I do with this question? And think about this. He'd become a Christian he regretted doing that, he'd not, he, he, it was not something he ever wanted to be proud of, he hated he done that. It was 18 months ago, he'd gotten this job already, he was never going to do that again. And he, he said, I feel like I need to say yes. And so he wrote yes and he lost the job. And I remember thinking that's what integrity is. Let your yes be yes and your no be no, but you know what, it will be costly. And I I think we understand this intuitively because some of us know there are people we need to tell the truth to and say things to and we realize if I say this, they're going to change their opinion of me and they're not going to like me anymore of this. Or we can tell the truth and report the truth and be honest and faithful and realize it's going to cost us something powerful that we have in our life. And it's going to drag us down to a position that we don't want to be financially or socially and it's going to hurt us. Where where do you get the power to have that kind of integrity? To be willing to take on the cost so your yes can be yes and your no be no. You have to look at Jesus and stare into his face. There's a place in John 18 before Jesus goes to the cross when he's on trial in front of the Sanhedrin and they ask him a question. They say, are you the king of the Jews? Is this who you are? And Jesus says, Well, you tell me I'm a king. And they slap him in the face. And Jesus says, You're only slapping me because I've told you the truth. And then he goes before Pilate. And Pilate asks him the same kind of questions. And Jesus says, Well, this is the truth. I came to bear witness to it. And Pilate just says, What is truth? And you know, one thing that we see about Jesus is that one of the reasons he went to the cross was because his yes was yes and his no was no. The truth cost Jesus, but he didn't just go because he confessed the truth. He went to bear the death of all of our lies and all of the reasons that we can't ever tell the truth. Look, and if you will look in Jesus... And you will let his yes be your yes, and his no be your no, so that his life becomes your life. And it's the gospel that undergirds, here's what this new identity does for you as a Christian. You can stand before God in all of your lives, and have the accountability of everything that you're trying to cover up, and say, you know what, no more games. This is what's going on. This is who I am. And you know what? He will look at that, and he will love you. And he will accept you, which is why you're always afraid to tell the truth because you're afraid if you ever let it down in front of somebody else, they'll reject you. And the cost will ruin your life. But you know what? When you're standing before God and the accountability of his presence says for you to take it down, you know what it costs you if you don't let it down? The only thing it costs you is intimacy with God. But look, to the degree that you will live in the freedom and accountability and the honesty of the presence before him. You will begin to do it for other people. Have you heard that that great John Newton hymn, Great God from Thee? We We should learn to sing this here. He says this, Great God from Thee, there's nothing concealed. You see my inward frame. To Thee I always stand revealed exactly as I am. But since my Savior stands between in garments dyed in blood, tis He instead of me is seen when I approach to God. What wondrous love, what mysteries in this appointed shine. My breaches of the law are His and His obedience mine. Look, to the degree that that is written deep in your soul, that you stand before God with nothing concealed, But Jesus, standing before Pilate, stands in front of you. And then on the cross, dying for all of the lies that we are so tempted to tell today. And that becomes a more powerful presence than anyone around you. You will be freed up to have the most powerful integrity in this world. And your yes will always be yes. And your no will always be no. Let's pray. Father that we could be people like this, that we could have Lord, the freedom or to not play any more games and ruin relationships and ruin things about us and ruin things about other people, but we could just be people that tell life like it is, that are honest, that are honest with ourselves. Lord, help us to see Jesus who did this, Help me to see, Lord, that I could be somebody who stands in this world with no games but speaks freely because of the freedom I have in your presence. Let it spill over in the freedom of the presences in this world. May your Holy Spirit do that amongst us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you enjoyed this message, we invite you to subscribe to the RSS podcast feed. This will let you know when a new message has been posted. You can also look for us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram at Journey South Bay. Until next time, God bless.